Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you come now, Spirit. Teach each one of us. Encourage each one of us. Challenge each one of us. Spirit of Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Turn, if you will, uh, to Philippians chapter 4. Robert Letourneau was a genius at building earth-moving equipment. A little less than 70% of all the earth-moving equipment and engineering vehicles that were used in World War II came from him. By the end of his career, he had almost 300 patents. He's also the man who founded what is now called Letourneau University in Longview. Letourneau and his wife, being Christians, decided to tithe to themselves. That is, Letourneau gave 90% of his salary, 90% of the profits from his company to the kingdom, and he and his wife lived on the other 10%. Their graves are on the uh, campus of Letourneau University, and at the foot of his grave is this scripture. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's our challenge this morning. How can we adopt the attitude of Robert Letourneau where I teach myself to live with less than everything I can get my hands on? And so, as we begin, uh, I have one more little piece of introductory information, and that is a slide that we've seen before. This will become important in our discussion, and I just want to remind us all that as Christians, we actually live on two timelines. There is what you would call the history of the world. Paul called it this present evil age. And then there is another timeline. It was inaugurated with the coming of Christ Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so now, as people who have accepted Christ as our Savior, we find ourselves citizens of the kingdom of God, but aliens living in this present evil age. The tug of these two is a constant source of discontent to us. And so we want to see how can we solve that problem. Let's begin with this passage in Philippians chapter 4. Paul is in prison. He's writing to the first church that he founded once he set foot on Europe. The Philippian church, they've sent him a gift and he wants to thank them for it. The key verse I want us to see is verse 11, but I'll begin in verse 10 so we can just pick up some context. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've received, revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want. 
for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Letourneau was content. Paul was content. How can I be content? The secret is found in a short proverb. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. The dilemma that you and I face is that after the fall, we daily are encountered by the complexity of knowing good and evil, but having neither the knowledge nor the wisdom nor the strength to conquer evil on our own. And it is those times when we give up, when we say, I can't do it, and trust God that we most glorify Him and realize contentment. To make this perhaps a little more clear, I'd like for us to do a little exercise. We're going to compare the reaction of two different people to time that they spent in the wilderness. So if you'll take one finger, stick it in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is the temptation of Christ Jesus in the wilderness. And then if you want to jump ahead, go ahead and turn to the book of Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 8. What's the connection? The connection is this. In all three of the temptations that Satan presented Jesus, Jesus answered Satan with quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And what is the uh, book of Deuteronomy? It is a resume of the history of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus was content in the Father. Israel is the model of discontent. In fact, before we even begin our comparison, I need to tell you that Israel dropped the opening kickoff. They were standing at the Red Sea with Moses. They looked back and saw the army of Pharaoh, and they immediately cried out to Moses, What? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us to the wilderness to die? We told you we did not want to come. We want to go back to Egypt. And so now let's begin this comparison. Matthew chapter 4 Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights fasting and the Bible tells us that he's hungry. And so Satan comes to him in his hunger and says, why don't you turn these stones to bread? 
the expanded translation, which allows us to look at this in terms of our subject today of contentment. Satan says, you know and I know that God said that he would take care of you. But look around, Jesus, you see any bread? I don't. Why don't you take matters into your own hands? Why do you need to trust in God? You can turn these stones to bread and then you would be like him. What was Jesus' answer to Satan? Deuteronomy chapter 8, the answer is in verse 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. You shall remember, Moses says, all the way in which the Lord your God has led you into the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Israel failed in their grumbling. Back to Matthew chapter 4. Satan takes Jesus into Jerusalem, the holy city. He takes him to the highest point on the temple. And he says to Jesus, quoting Scripture. The Scripture says that God's angels will take care of you. So why don't we be a little reckless here, Jesus? Why don't you just throw yourself off the temple? I'm sure that His angels will protect you and you will see how God can save you. Expanded translation. Why wait for God? If I want this, I can always take out a loan to get it. I can always use plastic money to get it. And then if I get in trouble because I can't make the payments, well, that's when I'll turn to God to take care of me. It's testing God. And what is Jesus' answer to Satan? If you're in Deuteronomy chapter 8, just turn back a couple of chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That was Jesus' answer to Satan. And the explanation for you and me is, as you tested him at Massah. Massah was the name given to the place where Israel became thirsty badgered Moses to the point that he finally went to God and God granted Moses the capability to strike a rock and bring forth water. Israel tested God. And Jesus told Satan that's not something someone should do. It's a sin and it leads to discontent. Finally, there's this. I'm back in Matthew chapter 4 again. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. If you're in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
just look up a couple of verses to verse 13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. The Egyptian Book of the Dead lists 120 gods. There were actually 200 plus that the Egyptians worshipped. And that is the environment that Israel came out of. And God says, no, there's one God and I'm He. And you worship me. Anything else is idolatry. So if I look at the prospect for wealth and consider it a source of satisfaction to me, I have two gods. And Jesus gave us an answer for that also in the Sermon on the Mount. He told us, no servant can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and riches. So there's our answer. It's as simple and difficult as trusting God. But just to say to trust God is a generalization. What I'd like to spend the rest of our time on is looking at two or three practical ways that we can work that out. And to do that, we want to look at the other scripture we're going to visit this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 has a lot to do with money because there were false teachers in Ephesus who were using their preaching as a means of monetary gain. And so the first thing Paul does is he addresses that in verse 6 of chapter 6. Paul says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And then he talks to the poor in the church of Ephesus. And in verses 7, 8, and 9, he tells them successively three things. Number one, you can't take it with you. Number two, you need to distinguish between what you need and what you want. And the third and most important is this. Do not look at the rich in this church and want to be or try to be one of them. To seek to be rich, Paul says, is about like the guys in the movie Jaws. If you're going after a great white shark, you better make sure you have a big enough boat. Then Paul decides to address the rich in Ephesus And this is where we will spend our time. Why? Because by worldly standards, all of us fall in the category of rich. So let's begin in verse 17. Paul says, instruct those who are rich. The next phrase is really important. In the present world, not to be conceited. The the word translated conceited means high or exalted in mind. That is, do not be high-minded. Look at me. 
Look at what I have accomplished on my own, and it has made me a wealthy person. Don't be high-minded. What is the problem with high-mindedness, and what is the cure? The problem is picking the wrong tool to make measurements. Let's say that from a worldly perspective, we wanted to find out who in this room was the richest. What would we do? We'd bring a scale up here, something that measures weights, and you guys would show up with all your stuff. We stick your stuff on the scale, and heaviest guy wins. That is the way the world makes measurements. Is it the way God makes measurements? I think not. James chapter 1. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position and let the rich man glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. So there's our solution to conceit. The world and the kingdom of God, these two different timelines, are so opposed to each other that I can turn a measuring instrument for the world into a measuring instrument for the kingdom by just reversing the scale. Heavy becomes light, long becomes short. I want to give you an example of this. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 7. But before we get to verse 7, Paul is talking about his former life and he is showing what he had accomplished according to the measuring stick of the world. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As far as the law was concerned, he was found sinless. But notice how many times in those verses up to verse 7 that the word flesh appears. That's the giveaway to us that Paul was talking about a worldly measure. Now in verse 7, he begins to measure things with the measuring stick of the kingdom. And he gives us four things to see to rid ourselves of conceit or high-mindedness. Number one is pick the right measuring device. Verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted for loss. Number two, once you have picked that right measuring machine, use it to measure everything. Verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Number three, I need to measure the treasure. What is it, who is it, that brings me true contentment? It is time with my Savior in the environment of His kingdom. Verse 7, for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. At the end of verse 8, that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, may be found in Him, verse 10, that I may know Him. This is what brings us contentment, is time 
with Jesus. And the fourth thing is the thing that we don't want to hear. That I may know Him, in verse 10, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. I be, I achieve success in knowing Jesus by sharing the cross with Jesus. So there's the test for Phil. The next time that something unpleasant happens to me is my first inclination going to be to cry to God, get me out of this, or is my first inclination going to be, thanks God for the test. I know that when I come through this, I'm going to know you better. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. The second thing that Paul tells us is this. And tell those who are rich not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. This next slide just shows you several quotes from Scripture. The first one is from Joab. The second one is from Esther. The third is from the epistle of James. And all they are there to indicate to us is this. Even a Christian, even a follower of God does not have perfect knowledge. So we have to trust in something. I'd like to trust in that something or someone who I think has my best interest at heart. The obvious answer is God. Why then do I spend so much time pursuing riches as the solution? Because there's also Phil. God loves Phil, but Phil loves Phil also. And Phil can make his own money. Phil can solve his own problems. Paul says, no. Even if it's good, it's not the best. Don't trust the uncertainty of riches Trust God. Finally, there's this. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. If God blesses me materially, what is the best way to demonstrate that to my neighbor? Well, the best way to demonstrate that is to go out and buy a brand new, you fill in the blank, and take it over to the neighbor and say, look how God blessed me. And what is my neighbor's reaction? Great, Phil. You're just like the rest of the world. How do I become a witness with materialism? I become a witness by taking what God has blessed me with and using it for His kingdom. Then my neighbor says, what in the world is going on? And we have the beginning of a conversation. Paul says, be good, be rich in good works. And he knows that this is not natural for us. So he says at the very end, be ready to share. I know I've spoken to a few of you here and there about uh, when I first started accompanying Linda on her trips to uh, uh, mission work in Argentina, I was a real embarrassment to Linda. As you get off the airplane, there will be someone from the church there to
to take your bags. No, no, no. I take my bags. And so Linda has to put up with Phil and this other Christian wrestling over Phil's bags in an international terminal. These people are taught to serve. I vividly remember uh, one trip we took. We were traveling from a meeting in one city to a meeting in another city, and I developed a cough. It wasn't life-threatening, but it was a cough. When we got to the other city, the car pulled off the road, and there was a member from the church we were going to visit with a box of cough drops for me. Be alert, Paul says. There's plenty of good work to be done. And what is the result of this? Verse 19 almost seems like Paul is paraphrasing the words of Christ Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, storing up for themselves treasures of a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And so we come full circle. We now see what Paul saw. We now see what Robert Letourneau learned. Did not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we use for clothing? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Contentment. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our discontent. Show us, Father, the two paths and be patient with us as we learn to take the path of your kingdom. Keep us alert to when we can do good with the resources you have blessed us with. And we thank you every step of the way for those blessings. In Christ's name, amen.